This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Patrick Maguire still in for Matt Chorley all this week. It's a Wednesday, so we're doing PMQs unpacked today with me and Tim Shipman. But first, our economist panel. No Alice Thompson this week, so Robert Crampton and Dorothy Byrne joined me earlier. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of day, so it's time to chat to two of our favourite commentators. On a Wednesday, it's usually Alibert, but there's no Alice Thompson today. So, Robert Crampton's still here. Morning, Robert. Morning, Patrick. And Dorothy Byrne, former editor-at-large for Channel 4 News and now president at Murray Edwards College in Cambridge, joins us on the line. Morning, Dorothy. Good morning. Uh, how are you doing, Robert? I'm good, Patrick, yeah, I'm fine. Not, yeah. chastened, by your, not chastened by your guess who experience? By my what, sorry? Your guess who experience just no, now. No, 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 I'm reasonably, I was reasonably pleased with myself until you started, you know, putting me down. Trash talking. Trash yeah, talking. no, it's a very, it's very high, high level, but I, yeah. And you're, you're well, Dorothy? I am well. I, I'm a bit exhausted by politics. Well, that's <laughs> off. That, that leads us to segue seamlessly on, Dorothy, to the, what you wanted to talk about this morning, which is uh, political fatigue after what you call the age of liars. Johnson was a liar and Trust made dishonesty uh, like she was Thatcher. <laughs> and you say you're hoping normal politics returns to uh, just a light sprinkling of uh, dishonesty, aren't you? Yeah, we don't expect politicians to be absolutely honest because we're not naive. But we have lived through a terrible age of lying, which has brought down two governments and also nearly destroyed our economy and undermined our democracy. So I would just like normal lying to (laughs) resume. I am feeling a little bit worn out because... You know, I've been sitting in meetings at Cambridge University, looking at my phone all the time going and people thinking I was rude and going, I'm just checking if we have a new prime minister. And and I think a lot of people feel like me that they're just absolutely exhausted from the whole thing. And we would just like to have a government that could maybe last for a few months. Robert, you also exhausted? Well, no, because I'm uh, I'm a journalist, so I don't get news fatigue. Uh, I welcome uh, looking at my phone to see if we've got a new prime minister, because uh, it's exciting, isn't it? You must feel the same way, Patrick. I, I do actually, although yeah, but the then I also, of these occasions has yeah, worn off slightly. I do also sympathise where Dorothy and I think probably the majority of people in the country are coming from, 
which is that they want a, a period where they don't have to think about this kind of thing. They just want some boring, competent people, honest people, as she points out, in charge, getting on with it, where they can worry about other things. And do you agree with Dorothy's analysis that this has been a, a period of, of government that's been uniquely <laughs> mendacious? Clearly that's true of Boris Johnson. I'm not sure that's entirely true of Liz Truss. In fact, I think Liz Truss might have been the opposite. Liz Truss kind of got elected. She said what she was going to do, and she did it. And then she it was, just turned out quite badly. She was wrong. Yeah. She was completely wrong. But I'm not sure she lied about it. Uh, I think a little bit of fudging and hypocrisy and lying might have served her quite well. I think she just believed in something that was wrong and tried to enact it. What do you think, Dorothy? a different sort of dishonesty? Mm. First of all, she tried to make out she was like Mrs Thatcher, you know, just the ordinary grocer's daughter brought up in Paisley and Leeds when actually her father was a professor of mathematics mm. and her mother went to my college at Cambridge University. And then she told us that you could have unfunded tax cuts and that that was a really good idea. And that was definitely not true. But she thought it was true, didn't <laughs> she? She, be- she? She did believe it, didn't she? I suppose this is the difference. You know, if you argue from a position of, of faith, if you are an ideologue, this is part of the problem that once you... And it was also partly the problem with the Corbyn manifesto. Mm. Uh, you know, once you're... You don't argue in a vacuum. You might believe... Every, your ideology, ideology might be internally consistent, right? But when it, it might not survive yeah. contact with reality or the market has this yeah. trust found to a cost. But yeah. maybe it's worse if you're lying to yourself. God, we're into quite deep philosophical yeah, territory here. I, I take the Dorothy's point about the two two versions of dishonesty. I hadn't quite I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but that's yeah, that is true. And I guess it, it probably is worse if you're then, if I mean Boris Johnson, yeah, incapable of telling the truth. But did any of those were they were they small matters at the end of the day? A lot of them were personal uh, integrity, very poor, mm. but not as bad perhaps as crushing uh, an entire economy. Um, Although he didn't do much for that either, did he? <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, general thoughts on the uh, on the cabinet, Dorothy? Well, I know we're told that this is a cabinet which will unite the Conservative Party, but actually, the number one thing should be that they're a cabinet which can run the country well, mm-hmm. and I'm concerned that uniting the Conservative Party has been put above running the company well and that's how we've ended up with this ludicrous and dreadful bravo man you know who no nobody would want for any mm. reason other than to keep her in the tent yeah suella braverman is the one that stands out for me there's something that's gonna she uh is not I think with some of the things that she was saying about migrants, about her kind of dream for Christmas was to put them all on a plane to Rwanda, struck people as as sort of borderline deranged, frankly. And that worries me that the Home Secretary is talking like that. And that is as that is obviously a result of them trying to keep her in the tent, as Dorothy says. Uh, but then competent, they're obviously more competent than the last lot. So that's all we can hope for at the moment, really, isn't it? They brought some competent people back. And uh, yeah, and look, I think and Jacob Rees-Mogg is gone. And and party unity is a necessary precondition for yes. the government being able to do anything. Yeah, right? I mean, I was I, I was impressed by William Hague's column this week, where he said, you know, for a democracy to work, its major institutions have to be functioning. One of those is Parliament. One of them is the is the government, and another is the Conservative Party. 
Uh, and so I'm not a particular fan of the Conservative Party, but I, I think for the sake of the country and the sake of democracy, we want to see it functioning uh, reasonably uh, in a reasonably healthy fashion. Well, let's move on and talk about another great institution, great national institution, which is the education system. Uh, Lord Blunkett has a big report out today, the former Labour Education Secretary, uh, who's chairing Keir Starmer's Skills Council. Uh, he's got a report out today about revamping the national curriculum. He wants businesses, scientists and teachers to be involved in writing a new national curriculum, uh, redesigning exams, uh, to take party politics out of education and build a modernised syllabus which is free uh, from interference from ministers and to really readjust uh, the curriculum uh, to be more in line with the needs of employers. Dorothy, as somebody who is working in uh, working at a university and is is thinking deeply about these things all the time, what do you what do you make of uh, what do you make of well, these proposals? I completely agree that politicians should have no say over the curriculum, but I think that we've got some really serious problems about our young people that we need to tackle. We know that by the age of nine to 10, 20% of girls are clinically obese. And yet we got away, got rid of teaching cooking. Boys and girls should learn cookery at school. They should all go out and do lots of exercise every day. They should manifestly learn much more about health. My daughter seemed to learn about nothing except sex and contraception. She didn't seem to learn anything else about health. She should definitely have learned about fertility and the menopause, but they need a lot more in the way of practical skills, personal finance skills. They should be introduced to business and entrepreneurship when they're at school, because we're going to need young people to set up businesses. And we need to end the snobbery. Everybody went on about how great Quasi Quarteng would be <laughs> as a Chancellor of the Exchequer because he spoke fluent Latin and could speak to ancient Romans. I mean, there aren't any ancient Romans. Apart from Jacob Rees-Mogg. There were only modern people and he couldn't speak to them. So, yes, we should teach, uh, you know, proper academic subjects. I myself did A-level Latin. But we really need to look at what our children don't know about. And number one for me would be encouraging healthy eating and living because we are facing an obesity catastrophe. Well, as, as, a, as a classics graduate, Dorothy, I, I will resist <laughs> the uh, temptation to... to either defend or uh, condemn myself uh, as a uh, as part of the problem here. Uh, Robert, do you agree? Time for another yet another overhaul. It wouldn't be the first overhaul in the past decade. We've had Michael Gove uh, sort of putting more old-school academic rigour. Yeah. And then yeah, Lord Blunkett is suggesting here that a Labour government, should they get in 2024, would revamp it again to... Uh, to put the emphasis on more practical skills, like well, Dorothy suggests, the right think, idea. Do you think? I think he's saying they'd make the Labour government would kind of make it quasi it'd do it like a Bank of England job yes, and, make, exactly. and make it independent. Uh, that sounds to me like a good idea. Uh, I could see where Michael Gove was coming from, but I think he was, uh, you know, it worked for him. Doesn't I think he, Michael's in a minority on the kind of things that he that interested him and served him well at school. Uh, so I don't think his uh, proposals were particularly, or they certainly weren't modern. I, yeah, I agree with everything that uh, uh, Dorothy's just said completely, particularly the stuff about health and exercise. I think primary school in particular should just be largely about, you know, very basic uh, 
academic skills and and then just you know exercise having a good time learning your basic stuff about uh, technology a little bit of diy a little bit of the stuff, the stuff you need in life and there's an awful lot of snobbery again you know i agree with dorothy i mean an awful lot of snobbery about that uh i mean when my son announced he wants to leave school at 16 uh that when we told some of our friends uh, most of them were fine but some of our, there was kind of middle class horror really yeah it was as if we'd announced oh sam's decided to be a crack dealer as it was, Sam was just decided to go to catering college. With a bit of crack dealing on the side. Yeah, I hope not. But uh, there was horror that he did, you know, because he wasn't an academic kid. Uh, so I think we're railroad, railroading a lot of non-academic children into academic subjects, whereas we should just, it should be much more skills-based. And in any case, for everybody, it should, the, the sort of things that everybody needs in life, like the cooking and physical fitness and a certain level of um, practical skills ought, they ought, to, uh, ought to be the basis of it. Well, Unity breaks out. That's a first on this feature. Mm -hmm. uh, just before I let you both go, we've got time for this. Yes, our fashion editor, Hannah Murphy, says Rishi Sunak is the best-dressed Prime Minister. Dorothy, do you agree? Yeah, I think it's great that he is well-dressed. <laughs> Some people resent it. <laughs> and say his clothes are very expensive. Well, if he wants to spend his money on expensive clothes, good luck. And I think it's also great that he can wear gorgeous, tight-fitting shirts <laughs> because he's so healthy mm. and fit. And I think it's fantastic that we have a fit and healthy Prime Minister. Boris Johnson looked like a shambles, and he was a shambles, and he was really unhealthy, and he nearly died of COVID. My eye was irresistibly drawn when you were talking about tight shirts to Robert Crampton's figure-hugging uh, ensemble I'm, I'm there. I'm looking all right. No, no, you are, you are, you are. I'm just, I'm just pulling you. your leg. I'm just pulling your leg. What do you, uh, your thoughts on Rishi Sunak's sartorial uh, credentials? I, yeah, good, fine, good for him. And he is, yeah, and he is in good, he is in good, Nick. I think that's a good example. And I, I think, I mean, Nick, I think it was Nick Ferrari who got a real uh, kicking for asking Therese Coffey about uh, her own... Uh, uh, size and health as health secretary uh, but I thought it was a legitimate question to be honest I thought I think it'd be nice to have people in charge who look you know like they're not you know that they're, they're sort of mm. you know got energy and vigor and you'd think well I wouldn't mind looking like that uh, I think that's not fat shaming I think that's just people being sensible about obesity uh, so I think it's good that Rishi's uh, in good nick and I don't care that he's rich and maybe he can pay for his own wallpaper you know <laughs> Well, it's a bold gambit to take, talking about people looking uh, in good nick when uh, me and Tim Shipman will be live on YouTube. <laughs> uh, me and, uh, shortly. No, but you know, no don't, don't worry, Robert. Don't worry, Robert. Anyway, I think we should end on that note. <laughs> that was Robert Crampton and Dorothy Byrne there. You can, of course, read Robert Crampton's column in The Times. Just get yourself a digital subscription. For next, it's time for PMQs on Pat. 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast with me, Patrick Maguire. Now it's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Patrick Maguire and Tim Shipman. No expense spared with that one from the speaker. Tim Shipman, political Chief political commentator of the Sunday Times, joins me in the studio. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Uh, are you looking forward to this one? Well, I think it's, it's always interesting to see them uh, roll out for the first time as they sort of joust and try and find each other's weak points. And, um, uh, you know, it was interesting listening to that debate just now because Liz Truss was pretty impervious to any kind of attacks and Boris Johnson was able to laugh off a lot. Rishi Sunak has a little bit of a reputation as being slightly prickly. And for mm. a guy who, you know, thinks he's got a reputation to defend as being this sort of upstanding chap, he's already put himself on the uh, the back foot with this appointment of Suella Braverman. And I suspect this, you know, I, I imagine he'll have some good lines lined up. Um, I think Michael Gove and Oliver Dowden were in there about five minutes before dawn this morning, weren't they, uh, coming up with jokes and gags and... And because uh, they they they've been doing this for a very long time, Oliver Dowden and Michael Gove for several Tory leaders. Well, they've done they? it ever since Cameron, really, and they, they, every PM has had uh, one or other or both of them in at one point or another. I think, um, and yeah, it's uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he copes. Um, if they start talking about his lack of growth, I wonder if people will start seeing that that's a heightest, that's a heightest, a heightest slur, comment, a vile heightest slur. Five foot seven, same as Macron. And there you Putin, go. Apparently. Well, some grounds for international diplomacy there. Exactly. I think, yeah. It'll be it'll, looking eye to eye. They would say <laughs> they can finally look into the whites of each other's eyes. It'll be interesting too. You know, we had Aisha Hazrika on just then, saying neither of them are great showmen. Whether it'll be slightly a, a dialogue of the deaf, almost, given, given that they're not uh, completely at home as Commons performers. Richard no, that's and true. Uh, but I would think both will want to show their own side that they can land some blows, and uh, that it's not just going to be a sort of. Um, university seminar in uh, the higher reaches of policy um this is the the one chance each week that you get uh, to show uh, that you can do the job and starmore wants to show you know that i can still cause problems for this prime minister and rishi sunak will want to convince the mps that backed him and those that were a little bit doubtful that the right decision has been made to give him this job unopposed um, uh, and has unity really broken out on the tory benches are we likely to hear them really whooping and cheering today, at I least think, for now. I think they'll probably put their backs into it today, won't they? It'd be more interesting to see who's not whooping and cheering rather mm. than who is. I, I imagine there'll be a cacophonous noise and having appointed a chief whip who seems to at least understand which way up is, um, unlike Liz Truss, um, I would imagine that uh, uh, that they'll have got people pretty organised and they'll have people scattered across all the parts of the benches to make some noise. Um, 
and at least shame everybody else into doing it too. And we'll doubtless hear this in a few seconds, uh, but as the man who revealed the full unsavoury details of the Suella Bravman affair over the weekend in the Sunday Times, it's a tricky one for Suella Bravman to fend, trickier still, given the details you have you uh, revealed in the paper over the weekend. Tricky is still for Rishi Sunak, Mr. Integrity, Professionalism and Competence, to defend that appointment, as he'll surely be asked to do shortly, surely? Well, as people in the building have said, that's politics. Um, we were told he didn't offer jobs. It seems pretty clear that he did um, in order to get Suella Braverman's nomination. And, you know, when you want to be Prime Minister, you, you do what is necessary to achieve that, I guess. Um, but I think it is certainly an appointment that when a guy stands up and talks about integrity and a couple of hours later puts uh, someone who's been sacked for two breaches of the ministerial code only six days earlier in post, um, it's left a pretty sour taste in the mouths of a lot of Tory MPs, along, interestingly, with the appointment of uh, Sir Gavin Williamson, mm. um, who is the sort of back backroom fixer. And he's got this slightly nebulous job at the Cabinet Office and his best friend, Simon Hart, has been made Chief Whip and a lot of people think, well... You know, is Gavin really the chief whip? Is he just going to be telling Simon who to grab by the throat and who to throw against the wall? That's probably a little unfair on Simon Hart, who's been a, uh, you know, a perfectly uh, uh, distinguished cabinet minister uh, on and off. But um, uh, yeah, people don't like the Williamson influence. Well, Ed Vasey was saying yesterday that Simon Hart does not look like someone who could break your legs, but he does know he does know who to call to break people's legs. And I think in the eyes of most Tory MPs, that'd be Gavin Williamson. Right, let's go to the Commons and hear Sir Keir Starmer's very first question to Rishi Sunak. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and may I welcome the Prime Minister. The first British Asian Prime Minister is a significant moment in our national story. And it's a reminder that for all the challenges we face as a country, Britain is a place where people of all races and all beliefs can fulfil their dreams. That's not true in every country, and many didn't, and many didn't think that they would live to see the day when it would be true here. It's part of what makes us all so proud to be British. Was his Home Secretary right to resign last week for a breach of security? Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, can I thank the uh, Honourable Gentleman for for his kind and indeed generous uh, welcome to the dispatch box. I look forward to Prime Minister's question time with him, and I know that we will have no doubt, robust exchanges, but I hope that they can also be serious and grown up. So I look forward to it. Well, he, he, he asked about the Home Secretary. The Home Secretary made an error of judgment, but she recognised that. She raised the matter and she accepted her mistake. And that's why, that's why I was delighted to welcome back into a united cabinet that brings experience stability to the heart of government. And let me tell you, Mr Speaker, what the Home Secretary will be focused on. She'll be focused on cracking down on criminals, on defending our borders, while the party opposite remains soft on crime and in favour of unlimited immigration. Well, a bit of a velvet glove iron fist from Keir Starmer there, a lot of magnanimity responding to the historical import of the moment, Britain's first uh, Asian prime, uh, prime Minister of Asian descent, but then going straight for the jugular on, uh, on Suella Bradman. Yeah, I mean, interesting that Starmer did that because one of his front benches was sort of saying, well, he's not really a proper Asian because he's one of these terrible Tory Asians the other day. Um, Wes Streeting gave a good response to that um, the other day and now Starmer's followed it in. So um, 
that will try and hopefully, from his point of view, deter other people in his party from uh, making those kind of comments. Um, but yeah, straight into Braverman. Um, and, you know, she made an error of judgment and she's back and she's hugely experienced. Well, she's only done the job for six weeks. Um, and Sunak there said that she brought it, um, uh, you know, she raised the matter. I think there are people who work for Liz Truss who say that that's not correct and that she didn't raise the matter. The matter was raised by Andrew Percy, whose uh, assistant had been accidentally copied into this slightly bizarre email that Suella Braverman sent to another MP. Um, He went to the chief whip, he went to the cabinet secretary, and the cabinet secretary raised it with the prime minister. I think the idea that... Uh, that the Home Secretary herself raised it is one that is at least questioned by others. Questioned and, yeah, questionable and indeed questioned. I'm sure Keir Starmer will follow that up pretty rigorously. Let's go to his second question. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, yesterday the Prime Minister stood on the steps of Downing Street and promised integrity, professionalism and accountability. But then, with his first act... He appointed a Home Secretary who was sacked by his predecessor a week ago for deliberately pinging around sensitive Home Office documents from her personal account. Far from soft on crime, I ran the Crown Prosecution Service for five years. I I worked with Home Secretaries to take on terrorists and serious organised crime. And I know firsthand how important it is that we have a Home Secretary whose integrity and professionalism are beyond question. So, have officials raised concerns about his decision to appoint her? Mr. Mr. Speaker, I just addressed the issue with the Home Secretary, but but he, uh, he talked about fighting crime. I would hope... I would hope, Mr Speaker, I would hope that he would welcome, I would hope, I would hope that as we look forward he would welcome the news today that there are over 15,000 new police officers on our street and the, and the Home Secretary will be supporting them to tackle burglaries while the party opposite, the party opposite will be backing the lunatic protesting fringe that are stopping pro- working Is this entirely convincing, Tim Shipman, from Rishi Sunak, this sort of uh, very, uh, very red in tooth and claw sort of rhetoric? Right. You know, you, you, it doesn't necessarily sound entirely uh, in keeping with the uh, mild mannered accountant we've uh, come to know, uh, does it? You know, hearing him talk about lefty loonies and. Uh, that sort of playbook. It's a does bit it? like Boris Johnson's scriptwriter has been left in the building to no, it, a degree. Exactly, um, that's what it sounds like, and it, it and it's a similar rhetorical technique, right? Keir Starmer is asking very forensic questions about the Suella Bradman affair, and in response, you're hearing why exactly Rishi Sunak wants Suella Bradman as Home Secretary because he can say, "Well, look at how tough we are. We've got the toughest." Right winger in the Conservative Party. Yeah, that's right. And he, you know, both of his answers have been pretty robust about borders and about burglaries and all that sort of kind of thing. And it's he's getting the cheers he wants from the people behind him. But he knows he's on a pretty sticky wicket here. And what's significant about that last bit? He didn't answer the question. Have officials raised concerns about it? I'd be very surprised if Rishi Sunak can say uh, no to that uh, question. Um, if the Cabinet Secretary and others have not uh, 
at least raised an eyebrow, um, I would be absolutely gobsmacked, to be perfectly honest. Um, and Starmer's doing quite well so far if we put aside the uh, relentless use of the, uh, the word secretary instead of secretary, uh, which is already beginning to drive me mad. Um, you can take he's the boy out of, uh, out of Rygate, right? You can't... Uh, <laughs> not that Rygate is particularly... Not that Barra, there's any Cockney Barra boys in, in Rygate, but you know what I mean. Uh, it's, but it's, you know, it's an interest, it is an interesting uh, contrast in styles here. And... You know, this is uh, this is Rishi Sunak in uh, in attack mode. It's something we haven't really seen that much before. Whether the public are convinced is another question. So, just a reminder: if you're just joining us here on Times Radio, we pause the action to uh, unpack the points being made by both leaders. We're just about to go to Keir Starmer's third question to Rishi Sunak. Well, well Mr. Speaker, I, I listened carefully. That was clearly not a no. We can all see what's happened here. He's so weak, he's done a grubby deal trading national security because he was scared to lose another leadership election. There's a new Tory at the top, but as always with them, party first, country second. Yesterday, yesterday, on the steps of Downing Street, he also admitted what the whole country knows. The Tories have crashed the economy and now somebody has to pay for their mess. I say it shouldn't be working people who've been hammered time and again by this lot, but those with the broadest shoulders must step up. Does he agree? No. Well, well, Mr Speaker, the Honourable Gentleman talked about party first and country second. Perhaps he could explain to us why it was a few years ago he was supporting the member for Islington North. Mr Speaker, uh, my record is clear. When times are difficult in this country, I will always protect the most vulnerable. That is the values of our compassionate party. We did it in COVID and we will do that again. Now, I think we're seeing the dividing lines that Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer will spend the next two years scrapping over here, aren't we? Or at least seeing the germ of the next Tory election campaign. Rishi Sunak talking relentlessly about protecting the most vulnerable in his earlier questions about delivery and public services. And Keir Starmer, as he told the Shadow Cabinet yesterday, trying to pin uh, the recent weeks of chaos on Rishi Sunak, saying he's weak, he's a prisoner of his own party, and then intriguingly um, suggesting that Labour would be backing higher taxes on high earners, which is something we haven't heard from Keir Starmer before, is it? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, they've, they've danced around that a little bit. Um, and that is the kind of um, thing that will uh, make the run-up to that, you know, the new date for this budget, much more interesting. Um, and again, um, Sunak responding with a sort of Boris Johnson point about, well, you back, Keir, you back Jeremy Corbyn, mm. Keir Starmer. So, I mean, it was popular on his benches. He got a big cheer for that. But um, again, it feels a little bit uh, like uh, Playbook 101 here um, from from Sunak, who knows he's, you know, there's not a person who in, in Downing Street who doesn't know that this appointment is controversial. And there's... Uh, the vast majority of them would have liked not to have felt they had to make it. It but feels it feels like an exercise in Sunak gritting his teeth and just trying to get through this. Exactly. Six questions. And the best form of defence is often attack. And Boris Johnson was pretty decent at doing that, and he seems to be uh, following the same playbook today. I have to say, uh, you know, remember if you're listening, you can also watch along live on YouTube. 
uh, if you're so perverse as to want to watch me and Tim do this in real time uh, and see the action from the Commons, uh, you're not particularly impressed, it has to say. Uh, Ross McCormick says, so culture wars meet for the people, Johnsonism 2.0. Uh, plenty pathetic from Sunak, absolutely pathetic, says Matt. Not sure if that's Matt Shirley. Uh, Pete Blakemore, <laughs> really what a waste of space this PM is. Boris reincarnated. Sunak, confident style, empty answers, says Mike Griffiths. Susan Hadnett, I'm no Tory, but I expected better from Sunak. Sunak, disappointed. And Saragon McEnany, big flop Sunak. Pretty unanimous in your answers that Rishi Sunak is uh, perhaps miscuing this. Perhaps because, Tim, this isn't the Rishi Sunak the public have come to know and came to know and love. Uh, they haven't seen a Rishi Sunak in partisan attack mode before. No, I think that's right. They're used to him sort of doling out cash and trying to be the sort of um, uh, the, the friendly um, church warden treasurer who's found uh, you know if enough bit money of, bit of more to pay for the, the Christ- roof. Christmas decorations. But um, interestingly, my WhatsApp though is full of Tory MPs saying, "Well, this is a bit better." Proper ding dong, you know, giving him what for, and a lot of the commentators seem to be sort of saying, you know, that Sunak's doing all right. So, I mean, Particularly you know, given never let sp- it be said that Westminster insiders <laughs> get everything right because well, quite but often it, they don't. I but. suppose if we're judging it on the basis that he needs to unify his party first off, given that Liz Truss has singly failed to do so, he appears to be succeeding in that respect, doesn't he? Yeah, and if, and if you take the view that Starman needs to land a killer blow that um, renders him speechless and looking defeated, he hasn't achieved that either. Um it is a good ding dong. Um, I think it's a fairly arid one, personally. But um, you know, we're um, uh, we're seeing, as you say, I'm not sure this is setting out the full uh, parameters of the next election. I think we're just testing each other in battle a little testing bit. Testing each other's attack lines. Right. Question four: Keir Starmer to Rishi Sunak. Mr. Speaker, he says he'll protect the most vulnerable. Let's test that. The government currently allows very rich people to live here but register abroad for tax purposes. I don't need to explain to the Prime Minister how non-dom status works. He already knows all about that. It costs the Treasury £3.2 billion every year. Why doesn't he put his mouth, where his money where his mouth is, and get rid of it? Well, well, Mr Speaker, I have been honest. We will have to take difficult decisions to restore economic stability and confidence. And my honourable friend, the Chancellor, will set that out in an autumn statement in just a few weeks. But what I can say, as we did during COVID, we will always protect the most vulnerable. We will do this in a fair way. But what I can say, I am glad, Mr Speaker, that the party opposite honourable gentleman has finally realised that spending does need to be paid for. It is a novel concept for the party opposite. This government is going to restore economic stability and we will do it in a fair and compassionate way. Well, quite a lot to get through there. I have to say I'm slightly surprised that Keir Starmer went there so early in his jails with Rishi Sunak talking about the Prime Minister not needing any explanation of non-dom status because, of course, of the revelations earlier this year about his wife, Akshata Murphy, previously having had that non-dom status. Are you surprised that Keir Starmer has uh, gone so personal so quickly? A little bit, but um, when you're sort of opening up uh, to show your party how you plan to tackle this new fellow, mm. I don't think it's a wholly unreasonable question to ask. But equally, it feels like one Rishi Sunak was expecting. And, um, you know, he's uh, half put it on the table there, hasn't he? Um, in terms of uh, what he said about Jeremy Hunt. Um, the interesting thing from the response there, and I think that was probably one exchange Sunak probably did win, um, was talking about 
you know, needing to pay for things. That was hugely popular. Big cheer for that. Um, you know, restoring economic stability. Spending does need to be paid for. That is not an argument either of the previous two prime ministers could have made because Boris Johnson wanted to spend incontinently and um, uh, Rishi Sunak tried to stop him, not always successfully, when he was his chancellor. And, and Liz Truss, you know, made a virtue of just whacking up borrowing and, and all the rest of it. So that does feel like a more traditional sort of... Uh, uh, standoff between the Tories and Labour and that does show that Sunak can make you know a more traditional conservative argument than we've heard for a little while against the Labour Party and it'd be interesting to see how that breaks over the next year or two. And it's, and it's, a, it's a conservative argument to which Labour don't really have a response yet uh, especially facing a leader who unlike Liz Truss has made so much of their sort of old school fiscal orthodoxy right because the Labour Party hasn't yet decided uh, what its answer to any of Rishi Sunak's big fiscal questions are. If you ask them, will they support uh, you know, spending cuts or tax rises that he brings before the Commons, uh, they can't answer. Uh, you, know, you say, where is the money going to come from from your spending plans? They say, well, we'll abolish non-DOM status. And then you ask, and then what? Then you get a lot of babble about green investment and uh, not, not at all uh, detailed prospectus uh, that doesn't really add up. So he is punching a, a bruise that the Labour Party have left exposed there and aren't entirely sure how to cover yet. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, has done a decent job of con generally convincing the public that Labour will be more responsible than you know previous Labour leaderships have been. Um, but because all the fuss has been about a government in disintegration for the last year, um, Labour haven't really been put on the spot. There's not been a great deal of scrutiny of that. And I think it will now be easier for people to turn their attention to that as a result of having Sunak there, because it will be a slightly different uh, debate. And Rishi Sunak is definitely the man uh, on the Tory benches who can and will do that. Right, question number five. Keir Starmer to Rishi Sunak. I know he's been away for a few weeks, but he should have listened to what's been going on the last two. But anyway, I, I, I have to say, I'm surprised he's still defending non-DOM status. He pretends he's on the side of working people. But in private, he says something very different. Over the summer, he was secretly recorded at a garden party in Tunbridge Wells, boasting to a group of Tory members that he personally moved money away from deprived areas to wealthy places instead. Rather than apologise or pretend that he meant something else, why doesn't he now do the right thing and undo the changes that he made to those funding formulas? Well, uh, Mr. Speaker, I know. I know. I, I, I know the right. I know the right, honourable gentleman, rarely leaves North London. But if he does, but if he, if he does, he will know that there are deprived areas in our rural communities. And across the South, and this government will relentlessly support them because we are a government that will deliver for people across the United Kingdom. But Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, he mentioned the last few weeks. I am the first to admit that mistakes were made, and that's the reason I am standing here. But that, but that is the difference between him and me. This summer, I was talking, I was being honest about the difficulties that we were facing. But when he ran for leader, when he ran for leader, he promised his party he would borrow billions and billions of pounds. I told the truth for the good of the country. He told his party what it wanted to hear. 
Leadership is not selling fairy tales. It is confronting challenges, and that is the leadership the British people will get from this government. Well, pretty uh, bravura response from Rishi Sunak there I think to he put crack cocaine on his Weetabix this morning, didn't he? <laughs> he, <laughs> he certainly practiced that in front of the mirror with some help, presumably from Mr. Gove. From Michael Gove, like uh, Mickey from Rocky, jeeing him up. I'm sure. Um, you know, pretty. Uh, it was. It wasn't the easiest of questions for Rishi Sunak to respond to because, it, again, those questions where your own words are thrown back at you. In this case, Rishi Sunak's pitch to a Tory garden party in Tunbridge Wells, where he boasted of having twiddled with the levelling up funding formula to make sure more cash or rather less cash went to deprived communities in the north and more went to constituencies like uh, Tunbridge Wells the le- in the leafy Tory shires. Tricky one for Rishi Sunak to respond to reflects how many directions the Tory party and he's being pulled in but he did manage to turn that back into a uh, a, a strong defence of his own principles and the principles that have ultimately got him into number 10, fiscal rectitude. Yeah, that's right. I mean, t- I mean, to be fair, ever since that um, that video broke, they have been trying to explain that, um, you know, he was talking about deprived areas of uh, coastal regions and that, you know, does Labour not understand there's poverty in rural areas? Um, but he, you know, clearly he was making a point that he was moving some stuff from Labour areas to Tory areas. Mm. Most of those deprived um, rural Tory seats are also Tory seats. So there was a party political point there, but, you know, it's also a legitimate argument that he made um, and... Uh, uh, that's the argument I'd have expected him to make. But again, you know, he must have seen that question coming, you know, uh, a mile off, um, given that Labour have been very exercised uh, about that video um, ever since it uh, appeared. Yes, they certainly have. And I think, I, I would say he probably won that exchange, wouldn't you? I would say so. Right. Final question. Let's see what Keir Starmer's peroration is. Let's see what the final attack line he tries to land is. And let's see... Let's see what Rishi Sunak's big payoff is. Question number six, the final in this exchange between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, I think everyone should watch the video and make their own minds up. In public, he claims he wants to level up the North, but then he boasts about trying to funnel vital investment away from deprived areas. He says one thing and does another. But they're shouting. They're not my words. They're not my words. They're the words of the former chair of the Tory party, sacked yesterday for telling the truth about the Prime Minister. Even his own side know he's not on the side of working people. That's why the only time he ran in a competitive election, he got trounced by the former Prime Minister, who herself got beaten by a lettuce. So why doesn't he put it to the test, let working people have their say and call a general election? Well, it'll take a long time to get through this paper if we carry on like this, Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, he talks about mandates, about votes, about elections. It's a bit rich coming from the person who tried to overturn the biggest democratic vote in our country's history. Our our mandate is based on the manifesto that we were elected on to remind him an election that we won and they lost. A mandate that says we want a stronger NHS, better schools, safer streets, control of our borders and levelling up. That is the mandate that I and this government will deliver for the British people.
Well, that was uh, pretty strong stuff from both sides, wasn't it? And yeah, also, absolutely. again, we're getting the attack lines both want both sides uh, want to uh, want to land. And guess what, Patrick? Here. We're enjoying them today. We but really when we've are. heard them for fifty times next week, we'll be wondering. No, we'll be. We we'll won't want to hear. You know, Rishi Sunak third out. in the third in the order of precedence to a lettuce. <laughs> uh, you know, Mister. You know, the continuity Jeremy Corbyn who tried to overturn Brexit. We're getting a sense of what they think is going to stick on both sides, aren't we? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, you know, it was a, one would have expected to hear from about the lettuce this week. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, you're going to get Sunak trying to sort up uh, support with the ERG by uh, cheerleading on Brexit. I've been watching the people on the front bench around him. It's quite interesting. Um, Kemi Badenoch, who's sitting next to, um, uh, to Sunak, greatly enjoying herself, nodding along, really getting into it. Penny Mordant, a couple of seats along the other way. Looks very wan. Not really. As you'd of, expect from someone who isn't foreign secretary. She not might have foreign secretary. Not you know didn't play her cards as well as clearly as well as Suella Braverman did. Um, you know Penny Mordant sat with her with a pair of aces and ended up um, losing the hand, whereas uh, dear old uh, Suella has pulled Jack Nine to an inside straight, hasn't she? Um, but it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as a contest, I think you know Starmer started pretty well, but there's a slight whiff of Liverpool in Istanbul there. Um, <laughs> uh, Sunak hit hit three firm goals back at the end there. I think, and at very worst, that was a three-all draw. And I think, given what might have been expected to happen, the Tory benches will go away pretty euphoric about that. All comes down to who Jersey Dudek in this uh, in this political footballing metaphor is. I think so. In in summary, I think we can say Labour wants to say Rishi Sunak is too wealthy to understand the problems the public have and is also a prisoner of a chaotic party despite pitching himself as Mr Stability and uh, all the attack lines of Boris Johnson through at Keir Starmer still stand from Rishi Sunak that he's Mr Islington that he himself is weak that he's a prisoner of the Corbynites and he wants to overturn Brexit yeah I think that's right I'm just looking down you know just to take a few uh, tweets uh, that are going on at the same time. You know, Ava Santina from Politics Joe says, Sunak is a catastrophe for Labour. I think it's probably a bit strong. But Sonia Sodder on the other side, a commentator for The Observer, says, uh, Sunak, very continuity. Johnson trusts in his approach to BMQ. Shores up the idea that not much has changed, really. Dan Hodges from the Mail on Sunday, uh, also suggesting Labour MPs ought to be concerned. Rishi Sunak was ready for Keir Starmer on every question. Well, I think he probably would have been in the first outing. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he deals with... Uh, Starmer on some of the specifics. Um, Sunak's supposed to be a details man, but today we got Sunak, you know, the big pi picture wielder of the cricket bat, while Starmer tried some forensic stuff and didn't get very far. But, you know, often it's what's not said. I think people will uh, look at that non-answer on whether uh, officials were concerned about the Braverman appointment. And if I was a daily journalist, I'd be going away to that try will be, That will be dogging that them for, for the rest of the week, I expect. I have to say... I think we both agree with Pete Blakemore on the YouTube channel who says this should now be renamed Prime Minister's Soundbite. No questions and no answers. Uh, nothing new in the world there. Right, we've just watched what I think we both agreed was a score draw between uh, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. Remember, you can always tune in and watch us live on the Times Radio YouTube channel as well. Having done those six questions between the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, let's have a look at the best of the rest. And as is our constitutional duty, sorry to disappoint uh, sorry to disappoint you, everybody, uh, we're going to go to Ian Blackford, who asked about benefits. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I congratulate the new Prime Minister on becoming the first British Asian to hold the office. The significance and the symbolism of this achievement is to be 
warmly welcomed by everyone. Yeah. Mr Speaker, yesterday on the steps of Downing Street, the new Prime Minister promised to bring, and I quote, compassion to the challenges that we face today. So, on his first full day in the job, let's put that to the test. A winter of uncertainty is coming, and next April we'll see a cliff-edge moment. Millions face a double whammy as the energy price guarantee is cut off, while households are hit by austerity 2.0 and a real terms cut to social security benefits that many rely on to survive. If people are actually to trust the new Prime Minister's words about compassion, will he today reassure people and guarantee that benefits will rise in line with inflation yeah, yeah. in his upcoming budget? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mr. Speaker, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his uh, again kind, kind remarks. And what I can tell him is my record on this is clear. Through the difficult times that we faced in this country yeah, yeah. through COVID, I always acted in a way to protect the most vulnerable. That's because it is the right thing to do, and those are the values of our compassionate party. And I can absolutely reassure him and give him that commitment that we will continue to act like that in the weeks ahead. Interesting question for me in Blackford, because if you remember a million years ago, okay, just over a fortnight ago at Conservative Party conference, this was the big row of the conference. Was Liz Truss going to raise benefits in line with inflation about 11% or in line with average wages 5%? Um, and Rishi Sunak hasn't quite answered in the way that Ian Blackford wants him to and committed to raising them in line with inflation. But given that his work in Pension Secretary Mel Stride was one of the voices leading that rebellion, Rishi Sunak is using words like compassion. Can we see where this one's going, Tim? Yeah, I think uh, Mr Blackford would probably go, rel go away relatively happy with that answer. Um, uh, he didn't say, I'm not going to write my budget today. That's kind of what he meant. Um, but it's pretty clear, uh, I would have thought, what the direction of travel is. And if it isn't, um, it's a clever answer to make us think that it is. But to make us think that... Uh, and it also allows... It's the sort of language that will allow him, probably, should he want to, to split the difference between 11% and 5% and find a middle ground that allows him to say, well, we're compassionate without boxing himself in and committing to uh, follow inflation, no matter how high it goes over the coming weeks and, and years and months. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... Um, these are very tricky financial decisions and every move of, you know, half a percent in inflation is liable to cost, um, you know, sizable sums of money. So um, he would not want to commit several weeks out um, from from doing that. But, um, yeah, it was a fairly sober answer and there wasn't, there wasn't too much jeering. I think people can see that he would like to do it, uh, uh, but uh, whether or not he does will... Uh, we'll find out on the 17th of November. Right, another sticky wicket for the Prime Minister next. The delivery came from Caroline Lucas, the Green Party MP. She asked about fracking. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister's reckless predecessor took a wrecking ball to nature, prompting millions of members of the RSPB, the National Trust and the Wildlife Trust to rise up in opposition. Yesterday, he promised to fix her mistakes as well as to uphold the party's 2019 manifesto. So if he is a man of his word, will he start by reversing the green light she gave to fracking, since it's categorically not been shown to be safe, and instead maintain the moratorium that was pledged in that very, in that very manifesto that he has promised to uphold? Uh, well, I've, I've already said I, I stand by the manifesto on that. But I, what I would say is that I'm proud that this government has passed the landmark Environment Act, putting more.
protection for the natural environment than we've ever had, with a clear plan to deliver. And I can give the Honourable Lady my commitment that we will deliver on all those ambitions. We will deliver on what we said at COP because we care deeply about passing our children an environment in better state than we found it ourselves. Bit of balm for a party wounded by last week's uh, row of a fracking, Tim. Yeah, I think he sort of, um, when he said I was sticking to the manifesto, um, whether there's a big row on the Tory benches about that, um, we'll see. But also, you know, a Tory trying to reassert green credentials again. Boris Johnson did a fair bit of that, um, uh, to give him some credit, um, uh, particularly around the COP summit and, and some of that stuff. And Liz Truss was desperate to unpick it. It sounds like Rishi Sunak is edging back towards the Johnson position there. Because Liz Truss was gave the impression, very deliberately, that she was prepared to junk all of that in pursuit of growth. Correct. You know, be that fracking or the moratorium on new North Sea oil and gas exploration. And as you say, Rishi Sunak is, is going back in the opposite direction. Yeah, and that makes it harder for, um, you know, the Green Party and bits of the Labour Party to attack him on that stuff. Um, but, um, you know, it's not always hugely popular with uh, his own benches, but I think people will see that as uh, a bit of the sort of old Linton Crosby strategy of barnacles off the boat don't pick fights that you don't necessarily need to have focus on what matters and i think we're going to see uh, from sunak mostly a focus on the economy uh, for the time being and you know uh, they'll want to get britain out of the woods before they start uh, uh, picking a whole bunch of fights on other things that uh, they're not necessarily going to win well it's been a week of unlikely comebacks in british politics here's another wendy morton once upon a time liz truss's chief whip Asking a question from the backbenches on new homes and the green belt. Mr. Speaker, in my, in my oldest Brown Hills constituency, we're at risk of 8,000 new homes being dumped in the constituency. Will my right honourable friend use the opportunity of this Prime Minister's question to reaffirm the government's commitment to, the, to protecting the green belt and to adopting a really rigorous brownfield first policy? Yeah, yeah. Well, can I, uh, can I say thank you to my honourable friend for her question? Uh, and I did, I can give her that assurance. She's absolutely right. We must protect our green belt, and we are adopting a brownfield first strategy. I'm pleased we had a record number of new homes built in the last year, but it's important that we build those homes in the right places. Well, that was a, a not unaggressive attack on Rishi Sunak, or at least a not entirely. Uh, friendly question from Wendy Morton, Liz Truss's chief whip, uh, one of the recent departures from government, uh, with a test for Rishi Sunak. During his leadership campaign, he pledged to make it harder to build on the green belt. And that was very much a warning shot from someone who's not particularly well disposed to him, was it? Uh, no. Um, I mean, it, it, the risk of being the facetious one, um, he would be more concerned if she'd shown herself to be a chief whip who could organise... Um, <laughs> another group of MPs to mm. agree with her, um, uh, which was not very in evidence when she was chief whip. But yes, um, it is a running sore on Conservative benches. People who want economic growth and, um, uh, you know, uh, development uh, desperate to um, allow um, planning uh, deregulation and a heck of a lot of Conservative MPs do not. Um, and it's always uh, a difficult one. Um, you know, there are rules in these uh, economic zones that Liz Truss produced, which are sort of a souped-up version of what Sunak himself backed uh, in, in free ports, um, where you could see um, quite drastic liberalisation of the, of the planning rules. Um, it'd be very interesting to see to what degree the Sunak government sticks with any of that. Um, again, you know, if his goal is unity 
Um, he'll be slow playing all that for a little while, and it's an interesting shot across his bows. Um, Particularly with Michael Gove back in the housing department, and he is you know, quite keen to get something done on this. So I think he appreciates that this is part of the Gordian knot. The Conservatives have to untie, at least before the next election, if they want to solve economic problems and electoral ones too. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, they, the Tories strongly believe that home ownership um, is something that makes you Conservative. Um, and they also have a heck of a lot of voters who have children who can't afford to buy homes. So uh, solving housing is one of the bigger uh, problems um, and the more important problems to solve. Unfortunately, it's also one of the most intractable. It's kind of one of those third rail issues that tends to electrocute anyone who tries to touch it. Um, and Wendy Morton just sort of uh, suggesting uh, she might have uh, a taser to hand. Well, let's see if she knows how to use it on the basis of the past week's evidence and her short, unhappy career as chief whip. I wouldn't uh, necessarily back her not to uh, fire it at herself inadvertently. Tim Shipman, chief as a commentator at the Sunday Times, thanks very much for joining us for another session of PMQ's Unpacked. That's all we've got time for today. I'll be back tomorrow and for the rest of the week. Remember to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.